0: Welcome back to Between the Levees. I'm joined today by Mr. Noel Anderson, the fleet director from Zeto Companies. You might know that as Huey P. Fleet, up at mile 105. They also own Algiers around mile 95. Noel, thank you for joining me this morning.
1: Hey, Tim. How are you? You're welcome.
0: Doing all right, my friend. These all begin the very same way. Tell me, sir, where were you born?
1: New Orleans.
0: What year was that?
1: 65.
0: 65. Tell me about growing up in this mid-60s, 70s,
1: 80s. Yeah, it was more the 70s. I don't remember the 60s. Yeah, you know, But in Gentilly, not far from the lakefront, Potsch Train Beach. <laughs> you know, good old NOLA public schools and Nard playgrounds. And then when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, mid-80s, we moved to uh, Metairie. And then finally in 78, I want to say... We moved to the West Bank. And that's where everything changed, you know, got out of school, didn't finish school, of course. Went to work, you know, money, money, money. Too early, too young, didn't know any better. But uh did all kind of different things, roofing bricklaying and stuff before I finally ended up, what was that, twenty one, so that'd have been in eighty seven is when I started on the river for uh Sioux City, it's the first place I ever worked, right up there in Luland. And that didn't last very long because they ended up uh, shutting the fleet down. I don't know if they sold it, closed it. I know they closed it because the last thing we did was move the dry dock to uh, Harahan for ACL. And it was kind of wild because we're going down the river with the dry dock and uh, the higher-ups didn't remember that there was an anchor hooked to this dry dock. So, right after we got through the Lumen Bridge, right outside of, uh, see, the, no, I think it was St. Charles, which is now ADM Destrahan, I want to say. And the anchor got hooked on the bottom of the river. So, needless to say, dead stop. Cranes went flying, toilets went flipping. It was, uh, it was a strange couple of days. It took a couple of days to get it taken care of, but that was the end of Sioux City. And that was uh, 87. 88 something like that but that was the beginning of it well
0: before we get too far down that road uh, were either of your parents in the in the industry
1: no no my mom was a homemaker pretty much till she died she had a couple of jobs when we was kids like at the uh it's a place off canal street the pearl i remember she waitress dad when i was real young but i don't know i was real young but she was pretty much a homemaker and you know they divorced before we moved to metairie and my dad the only job I ever known him having, he worked for the times picayune newspaper his whole life. As soon as he got out the military, well, I think he was part-time when he was 16. And uh, he worked there till he died. Times-speaking newspapers, what they call in the composing room. Editing, proofreading, which that was pretty interesting. A couple of times he brought his dad going up in the tower and through the press room and all that. But he worked there till he died.
0: What did he do in the military?
1: I'm pretty sure he was more or less reserves. He never saw action. Uh what I remember, he basic trained at Paris Island over there in North Carolina, I think it is on the East Coast. And he was reserves for a couple of years, but never active duty or anything like that. I think he did it money for high school and blah, 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 blah. I don't know that I don't believe he ever went to college. I think he went straight from military and high school to the Picky as a copy boy and then that was it, worked there till he you know passed away. he was sixty three so they they did him well from what I remember when uh he got cancer, but uh they did pretty good for him in his last few years of life. I guess you know much as you could ask for, him. and I want to say it was in two thousand and two when he passed away, something like that. It's hard to remember the bad things, you know that kind of stuff.
0: And didn't your career on the water begin prior to Sioux City? I think you said on a dredge. No.
1: After the uh, Sioux City thing, when that job went away, I was working for, that was Lars G. Tolan, Lady G3, Lady G2. And they still, are, the Lady G3 still around. I see it every now and then. It's kind of neat to see it go by. But after that, when that went away, because we all got laid off, uh, that's when I went to work for, it was Train materials, but we were working for SWES on uh what was it, the Gulf dispatcher and the Gulf Express and that's what they did they worked for uh train. that's when they were still dredging in the lake shell but you know dredging shells we'd tie up to a damn dredge and go in circles for three days and then you know we had a couple of interesting runs with them shell barges up the uh, blonde River that was exciting on Father's Day weekend stuff like that but It didn't last very long. I think I did two and a half hitches. I just, it was easier work than working in the fleets uh, and more money. But, I, you know, I had young kids. I had a daughter, a year old at that time, 84. Uh, No, that was when Noel was born, 86. So I just didn't like living on a boat. And back then, you know, the mid 80s, the boats weren't quite like they are today. So it was, you know, I just I tried and tried and tried not only living on the boat and being away from home, just the living conditions. I just I, I couldn't deal with it. And finally, just I'll go back in the fleet somewhere and work harder and make less money. But, you know, be home every day. You learn a little bit more. You know, you're out there pushing them dredges around. You're not learning anything, you Working by yourself at night in these waves in Lake Pontchartrain are smacking you in the back. You trying to face up these two-part wire face wires. Me, 135, 140 pounds. It wasn't uh It wasn't easy. You had a lot of layback time, and I think that kind of, really, that kind of made it worse. You know, you're just twiddling your thumbs. You can only clean a boat so much, and you know it's just rather boring. You know, you worked, What was it? We worked the six-hour shifts. I never ever got used to that six hours time you fall asleep hey go up time to come on watch oh yeah so it just i it didn't agree with me and uh so i went back into fleets and i want to say my first fleet job was for i went to compass compass marine the old uh first boat i worked on for them was the gold yeah the gold star canazaro fleet which is still there they still roll, not the gold star, but they changed, which, you know, they changed all the names, but that turned into a, this is kind of a boring job too, you know, to go into when the Gemini wasn't working and then, Oh, we got a tow coming in tonight. Great. But you know, the Spartan and all the other Arco boats would come up in two hours, you know, i broke a 35 barge tow and you're back to doing nothing. So I went and switched to a uh, stable compass, but went to the Bob Livingston at, uh, Tulane, which is Flowers now. I think it was Flowers, then it became Tulane, and now it's Flowers again. It was just a little more things to do, you know, more activity while you're out there, getting paid, you may as well be keeping busy. But that went away. I went back to the Gold Star and had a falling out with the safety guy and, you know, young, dumb, and stuff like that. So right after Compass, I was there from... Probably around like 88 to 90, because I started at Zito in 90 as a fleet mate. And here we are. So it's been a minute. But what a great place to work, man. It's 30 years. You know? it's It's been interesting. Never born, that's for sure. <laughs> Never born.
0: Backing up a little bit, tell me uh, about your, your first time getting out on the water on a boat with Sioux City.
1: Well, it was at night because it was, you know, you didn't have to go to an office and fill out an application. A friend stopped by my house. He was the captain on the Lady G3, I want to say. Asked me if I wanted a job and that was it. Went and got on the boat and went to work. And uh, it was definitely I a, a, I don't know, perspective changing image of what goes on in that river that you cross every day of your life and. It was extremely high, if I remember right. It was uh, 18 foot rivers in the winter. I wanna say it was probably December, January, well, probably more of January of 87. And the first thing we had to do was go down to Cannizzaro by way, you know, ironically, and pull a part load off, of a, off the Gemini, you know, it's sitting all there I don't know anything. I don't know nothing, I'm green as they come. <laughs> walk up the push knee and jump on that barge with this heavy ass wet rope, you know, and I'm looking down probably, I don't know, six, eight feet that I'm gonna have to jump to land on, you know, catwalk three feet wide. that has got meal on it this thick. And I was gonna, and captain Mike slid his window open cause they had a sliding window on the wheelhouse. That tells me, uh, whatever you do, don't fall in, because I'm looking at this water running between the boat and the barge, and it's smoking, and you know, when he said that, that was it, I down the push knee and just climbed on the barge and had meal from head to toe, but I didn't fall in the river, that was my first experience on the river, after that, you know, it got to normal stuff, everything kind of came a little normal, and then I got paired up, with another green guy it was a friend of mine with another green guy so we were both green so it was like a crash course in a matter of a month with a lot of help from other boats and people like that you learn a lot when you don't know nothing and you're working with another guy that don't know nothing it kind of it was definitely a crash course because after a few months I pretty much had it figured out as much as you can but it was something it was like Growing up as a teen and having, you know, I got an older brother, he's a year older than me, so he had some older friends and a lot of them worked on the river because, of, you know, the, the rules and the way you went to work were nothing like they are today. You didn't have to have an application, drug test, physical, just, I need a deckhand, bring them off the street, that didn't care. But to listening and talking to people, all I ever heard was the bad things. People getting hurt, people getting smashed, blah, 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 and people not getting paid, whatever. So that for years uh, pretty much drove me away from ever wanting to work on the river. I never wanted to because of that, but then it turned into a, well, you don't have a choice. You got to go to work. And that was it. I haven't had a different job since, you know, 1986. Uh, But like I said, I only heard the bad parts. Once you get out there, you know, out in the open freedom, you're on the water. It's kind of nice. You see things that, you know, you don't normally see doing construction and bricklaying and whatnot. What and just the boats, uh, you know, I got interested in the boats and working on the engines. And I never wanted to be a mechanic, but just learning it. Because uh, I always like working on my own cars. But but yeah, so it was different. And uh, as I sit here today, I'm glad I made the move and didn't listen to the rumors. And I mean, it was all in good Good advice you know getting coming from the older guys and hey, you don't want to work on the river don't ever do that uh, nobody ever i don't remember anybody ever saying anything good about it until i went and started it was, it was kind of strange you know but you get to a point where you don't have choices and you know hey it's money let's do it
0: any interesting stories or events from life on the job between uh, sioux city and getting to zito
1: uh, not much. I have I didn't see a lot of people get hurt. I, I came in on, on a wa- after, you know, a night watch where a guy got smashed and didn't make it, but I wasn't there to see it. Uh pretty much at Sioux City and the dredge, it was just regular decking. But getting to Zito, uh I remember my first day when I got on the well, my first day I didn't work out in the fleet. I did some stuff on the bank and when we finally went they let me go in the fleet because I only had a year or three, three years experience. And what I knew about fleet men or fleet mates from Arco, you know, they ran the show and I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm ready for that just because of the knowledge, but <laughs> it was a little different at Zito. You didn't have the, the uh, Artco's you had uh, like the Miss Nari working national Marine was the big customer. So we did turn toes kind of like Arco, but it wasn't as, often or every day or every other day there's a couple times a week tops and so it, they were flexible and was willing to let me learn and like i said referring back when i first first time i walked in the fleet you know we turned the corner around the shipyard and i see these barges and i'm like stacked on top of each other i'm like well what is this i had never seen that before so that was a you know you're walking across the bow of these barges and there's barges above your head i'm like you know what, what am i getting into here <laughs> And uh, you know the deck hands That that particular day, I grew up with the, the guy Sid, a guy named Sidney Vincent. He's no longer with us, but so he helped me out a lot. You know, to let me learn not only the, the stacking and how to rigging, but the actual you know working toes and things like that. And on that little single screw six hundred, the same time, and he, there was a lot of things you had to do on that boat, building toe and, and breaking toe, especially in high river that you don't have to do on a bigger boat. So there was, I learned a lot of little. It, it really translates to building tow, just landing in the fleet and shifting in the fleet because like I said, a single screw six hundred and eighteen foot river moving loads around was uh luckily I wasn't a captain. They could have that. <laughs> but so yeah, Zito definitely took it to another level. Stack barges and having a big shipyard, things like that. Uh well, what but, were
0: these what were these barges stacked up for? Or what what was that?
1: Well, they, you know they stacked what what was going on back then. Uh, barge lines were selling a lot of equipment to, I want to say, Argentina and uh, you know down south, south South America, in a few places. Pretty much started up a river industry. So you know you stack them the way we did it. We put one barge on a dry dock, cut manholes through the you know the shell, the hull, and then through the hopper. Actual manholes like you have on deck, dog down manholes, raised manholes, whatever you want to call it. And uh, sink the dry dock, open the manholes, flood the barge, sink the barge, literally put another one on top and pump it up. Weld those manholes covers shut and do it again. If I remember right, the first one we did, which it was already done when I got there, but I want to say it was 10 wide and too high. So 20 barges in one move going on a submersible ship. And that was a big eye opener watching a ship intentionally sink. Like really, that's how this works. The ship's gonna sink below the water. And that's that was. uh, (laughs) Well, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And back then, you know, we didn't have cell phones, take pictures of it. and You're trying to explain it to family and friends, and no way. Half of them are like, "That don't happen." I'm like, "Hey, well." Which later on, when I moved into the dispatch office, every time we did it, we'd get phone calls. Y'all I know you got a ship sinking in the in y'all uh, in the river. <laughs> yeah, that, that always happened. But it, it was uh, definitely something new. Kind of went away. Been going. It spread out. From, you know, Zito. I think was the beginning of it. They had the first couple, and then you know other people jumped in. Of course, CGB, Cooper, whatever, and it kind of spread out throughout the uh, lower river industry. But that's since went away in the last six to 10 years. I guess they uh, got started, you know, all these areas down in Central America with boats because we'd put boats and barges on. Them. And we've also done uh, what they call them, plants, little mobile all well, all rigs, you know, all confined in one thing and put them on and go wherever they go. Most of it went south to South America. What was it dockwise vessels and... Uh, I think Dockwise owns most of them now. It used to be a different company. C-Term was none some, was the name of one of the ships, but they all do the same thing. But it, I never knew that existed. A submersible ship. You know, I was 20, 23 when 23, 21 when I first started on the river. So I was about 24 at Zito, 25. A submersible ship, you know, but that's been going on. I mean, I know now, but back then, after looking into it, that's been going on for years. You just don't know. If you're not involved, it's just not out there. Of course, nowadays with the internet and cell phones and all that, it's a lot more known. But, yeah, that was uh, different. And it piqued my interest. In, hell, I've been still there.
0: Well, what happened in South America? Did, did they unstack these things, unweld them? Or was it, what were they doing well, with it?
1: The barges weren't actually welded together per se. They were welded to the deck of the ship. They put, you know, angle irons and every three barges. And uh they did basically the opposite of what we did. You know, they would leave the lower deck, the lower cut welded, open up the manholes that we installed, and sink the ship, take the top level off, then float so, uh pump the ship out like a dry dock, surface them, and then weld everything up, close the manhole. Now, I don't know for a fact that they actually removed the manholes and welded up the holes, which I would think that'd probably be the smart thing to do, but being that it was a new industry down there, who knows? Because years, as the years went on, there was a lot of, we get bits of information from time to time about (laughs) the crazy stuff that was going on in South America, but just because it's new, you know, they didn't have this. They were still wooden barges, nothing like this. And uh, lots of boats sinking, lots of barges sinking. And, but I think what happened the way after the used stuff, I think that now that it's changed the way they're building their own, just like we would here. <laughs> but that went on for a long time. There was, uh, I want to I say, a couple of Ingram boats that went over there. I couldn't tell you which ones. but It was the normal was, what, 20 barges at the beginning, 20 barges, and one boat, sometimes two. Well, as the years went by, that changed to, well, uh, hell, if we can go two high, we can go three high. So that turned into 30 barges at a time. We did one. It was, uh, I want to say, six giant, which they called them giant lash barges. They weren't your normal size. They were bigger. Uh, But that was the lower level. They did whatever they did, prepped them, and then uh, we put them on the lower level and then split them up. Put them on the ship. Ship come up, touches. We break all the rigging between them, and then you split them up so you had a gap 70 feet wide between the bottom level of barges. Then we resunk the ship, resank the ship, and then put a level of too high barges on top of that. But when you think about that gap we made on the bottom level, four barges in the middle of these 10 wide, too high, had to, to, you know, drop down a level. So that was because you had to do it. You had to get ready while the ship was still below the water. And you had to break the rigging like at the right time. So nothing shimmied it. Because if they twisted, they would hit the lower level barges. And that was... That was probably the scariest one we did, just because you're dealing with rigging and stuff touching that you can't see and tension here, tension there. No, don't break that one. Break this side first, you know, because the ship does this. And one thing we did learn was don't react to the first impact because that first impact's going to go away. Jump the gun and then your barges twist. So that was pretty interesting. And so we actually had to stay on the barges as the ship came up. Because there's no getting off at that point. You're too high. Uh, so that was pretty wild. Because you're sitting on these barges underneath these rakes, and you know it's starting to hit on the upper of the end underneath the water, and not here because the ship kind of comes up like that. Never comes up straight. So you know you're kind of running from rigging here, running from rigging there. You know you don't know where to be. You don't want to be down the catwalk because then you're actually is no matter where you go, your just. And let me, let me track back, because we had to get on top. Yeah, we had to get on top to break that rigging also. That was a, another scary thing, going up a ladder. You're already 10 feet out the water, but you're going from rake to a box up a ladder. And you don't have very much room for error. If you do fall, you hope you land on the rake. But that was kind of loud because breaking the rigging and going down and breaking that bottom rigging and uh, just knowing where you got to be. There's really no telling. There's no guarantees. You can plan everything. It never goes as planned. Everything changes. You know, it was It was pretty interesting. Scary. And it just seemed like, to me, a lot of danger for a little bit of whatever because you, you don't make any money, any more than you would sitting around in the fall. So it's all kind of, so it, it was definitely interesting and we did one it was just one level of barges so it was pretty easy the hardest thing was building them because you, we had what I want to say it was four 300 foot tank barges you know super jump 300 by 297 by 50 and then a couple smaller ones and then a couple regulations so it was a little challenging laying it out, which, you know, Bojo and them did a good job of that, the engineering side, I guess you'd call it, laying out the bits and all that. Well, uh, that was pretty simple. Once we built the flotilla, it was one move, pick it up. But I pretty, I'm pretty, i pretty sure as of today, that was the widest vessel to go through the harbor of New Orleans because, you know, the barges are sideways, so it was 300-foot wide. So I'm pretty sure it's, as still today, it's the widest vessel ever to go through uh Hog, <clears throat> but that was interesting.
0: Well, walk me through uh your career from fleet mate, I guess, to now.
1: Well, I was fleet mate for I started in November of 90, and I want to say it was June of the next year 91. I got in a car accident, hit a tree. Uh, let me end
0: this call hold on okay. well before we were so rudely cut off by one of those work calls uh, yeah you, imagine you, that you were mentioning that some things changed when you got in a car accident want to start back from there
1: yeah i was uh i was still fleet man and wow. we worked a saturday uh you know getting to work at four thirty in the morning well i went to a concert friday night went to work saturday morning but you know you're young that didn't affect you when you're 25 26 And worked all day. We was rebuilding the spar system right at the upper upper end of the yard, a wash dock. So, you know, middle of June, hot, worked all day. Then we went, had something going on at Bice that state park. So it was a long day, which turned into a long night. And then we went to a damn uh, New Orleans Breakers football game in the Superdome, the old USFL. And, You know, so it was a long day, long, even late night and. Driving when I probably shouldn't have, and uh, I guess the only good thing about it was it it wasn't my car that I wrecked, (laughs) you know, but I took the brunt of it, broken collarbone, things like that. And uh, so that took me off the deck for a while. But my boss, who was Bob Munson at the time, he, uh, after about a month of healing, he gave me the chance to, you know, hey, you want to come sit in dispatch just to stay on payroll? And I'm like, yeah, anything, because I'm about to lose everything I got. You know, back then, you lose a month of work, you know, everybody lived paycheck to paycheck. And that that, that hurt real bad. But yeah, so I did that. And it, you know, let me sit in the office, keep me on the payroll. And I learned a little bit. And just coincidentally, you might know the name, a fellow by the name of Phil Malini, I'm sure he retired about ten years ago, but he left Zito to go to, uh, Connie Carroll when Carrollton was still Connie, and I just kind of slipped into that dispatch position. You know, I can't say what the question that I was asked when he first called me, but it was kind of like, "Can you be bleep bleep enough to be a dispatcher?" I'm like, "Uh, yeah, I think so." I've been up there for two months. Why not? You know, and that's when everything you know that's when I moved into the office and. You know, I looked at it as another level of learning and it was really, really challenging, you know, not having any experience in it. And I didn't know I was training at the time. So, you really, you know, you don't really absorb it like you should have when you know you're training. So it was another time I kind of just got thrown into the fire, but it ended up being a good thing. You learn a lot quicker that way because you really don't have an option. <laughs> you, know, you can't stop. There's nobody to ask most of the time, but, uh, so yeah, I moved in, became a dispatcher, which was kind of nice working that schedule, which, you know, when I was fleet, man, it was, you know, five days a week. And, uh, every other weekend, 24 hour on call toe comes in, you got to go to work. Don't, you know, so it was kind of nice switching to a seven and seven schedule. That was, that was the biggest attraction. I'm like, Oh, money. I don't care about the money. Seven days off every seven days I'm in, you know, because when I was decking, it was, When I wasn't living on the boat, it was fourteen and seven, so I kind of got used to that, having a week off every all the you know every two weeks whatever. So that that was interesting, and then it was even better seven and seven. Uh, so that went on. Hell, I dispatched from ninety one till I want to say probably two thousand and two. Two thousand one, two thousand, do something like that. Uh, I kind of got bored with it. You know, we always had four dispatches, so I worked strictly days. And then a lady, Miss Patch, she retired, so we went to three dispatches. So then, at that point, then we had to switch to working days and nights. I think we went to a ten and five schedule or something like that because you couldn't do seven and seven. Uh, but it didn't take long for the nights to. Uh, I just can't sleep during the day. Work all night. You go home, get the kids off to school and try to go to sleep before you know it. They back home from school and you're going back to work. And it it was really the nights that pushed me away from wanting to do dispatching anymore. It wasn't the dispatch. It was just the schedule. So I went back out in the fleet and actually got a little bit of a raise because they was in a pickle and somebody quit. I don't remember exactly, but it was kind of strange to... A lot of people, because it's like, ain't you going backwards? I'm like, well, maybe so. But, you know, I'm not working nights, uh, except on the weekends. Because when you're as main at that time, when you work nights, you didn't really work nights unless you had a toe. So you were still doing a seven and seven schedule almost. It's a little different. But I went back on the deck. And then that lasted till Katrina. I was on the deck for when Katrina hit. And then, I don't know, a couple months, once everything started getting back to normal, I don't know if you could ever say that ever happened, but uh, not long after that, because, you know, the first two or three months, hell, we lived at the yard. So everything kind of, you know, the area got back into uh, normal ways of life. I don't know if you remember, but it, it took some time because I lived at the yard for, what, three days before Katrina until that was, what, right at the beginning of September. I want to say I was still living at the yard into Thanksgiving, you know, because just because everything was kind of crazy. My wife and them stayed away. They'd come in, or I'd go away for a few days. And somebody left. I want to say Mr. Photo, Joey Photo. Yeah, he left. So I got thrown into where I am now which it wasn't thrown into it. It was, you know, it was suggested a few times and discussed and uh, I think it took them a little while to think I was experienced enough to do it. And it was that and I think they were kind of stuck with me. That's how I felt at first, you know. Because it was so, you know, so much catching up, not only with the normal day-to-day routine, getting back. They didn't have time to go hiring people and all that. So I just got, got thrown into it, which I definitely at that time looked at it as a temporary thing. You know, I'm pretty sure it's just going to be till things get better and back in action and back to normal. Uh, but I guess they went, you know they were nice enough to keep me in the position and knock on wood. I'm still kind of doing it. It's a little different these days, you know, but what ain't where well, this crazy world is. but So, uh, yeah, it's been enjoyable, crazy. And I appreciate the fact that they gave me that chance. I mean, they gave me all kinds of chances over the years. And uh, I'm still there and I don't see me going anywhere unless... I live longer than I think I am, you know, I guess you could say. <laughs> Who knows, you know. But as long as they'll have me, I'll be there.
0: Any, any interesting events come to mind that you may have witnessed or been a part of over the years in dispatch?
1: Oh, man, dispatch. There was so many things in that. Yeah, it was all kind of crazy stuff. People jumping. I remember a guy jumping off the Huey P. Long Bridge. Well, actually, at that time, I was still fleet man, fleet maiden. And I'm talking to the Captain of the Miss Nar, you know, getting the rigging count from him as they coming through the bridge. And uh, Captain Kenny, I don't remember his last name. He calls me on the radio and tells me, man, you know up, I think a guy just jumped off the bridge and landed in my toe. We had a you know bunch of open coal loads, if I remember, right? So we went up there and backed him in the fleet. Couldn't find anybody. I jumped on a boat called the Catherine time. They happened to be sitting at the dock doing a crew change or something. Well, not boat. They weren't working for us, but just to get up there quicker. So I got up there and we backed them in the fleet and couldn't find them. Checked the whole tow. I don't remember how many boats. It was a pretty big tow. We, you know, looked in all the open hoppers and couldn't find anybody. So I jumped back on that Catherine time and we went looking, and there he was. Face down, wearing a life vest. Guy was wearing a life vest when he jumped off the bridge. So, uh, I mean, all we could do was try to grab him. So I hit him with a spike pole. You know, I'm thinking the worst. The guys, you know, grab his life vest with the with the uh, spike pole. Which, why would you jump off of a bridge with a life vest? beyond me but I hit him with that spike pole and one of the scariest moments in my life he starts screaming bloody murder I'm like Jesus Christ this guy's alive so we get him to the boat and he was so big it was just me and one deckhand trying to get him out the water because he's outside his mind of course I guess he jumped off of a bridge and how he didn't get run over by that toe because the captain thought he landed in the tow. I'll never know. Uh, so as we're trying to get him you know, out the water, because it was high river and just wasn't easy. Finally, one of the other deckhands that lived on the boat came out and we got him on the boat because he wasn't very helpful. So uh, <laughs> I remember calling Miss Patch. He was dispatching on my radio to tell her, hey, call an ambulance. This guy's alive and, Understandably, Miss Pat began to curse me out on the radio saying, Don't you toy with me like that, blah, blah, blah. So I keyed the mic and she heard it. Then we get the guy on the boat and we get him in the galley and we talking to him and we see duct tape on his wrist, letting him calm down. And me and the other the guys, are, you know, what? what's going on? By the time we're halfway to the dock with him, he's calm, not calm, but calmer, so we could nothing else to do but talk to the guy and ask him questions. My first question, I think, was, what is this about? And it was his driver's license. He had a duct tape to his hand, to his wrist, which told me right away, well, that's why you want life vests. Yeah, that way he could find me. My my wife and kids would know what happened to me, so that was the reason for the life vest. so they could find him. That was probably the strangest thing. <laughs> you know, we've I've seen a couple other bodies. A lady. I remember the story right. Her son, he was a uh, high school football player for one of the schools on the east bank, like Romo or one of them and uh he left at halftime of a game on one night and on his way back got in a car accident and died you know during the game so it was doesn't really matter. out of a couple of days later two or three days later his mother jumped off the Huey P and uh we found her. right she was about to go underneath one of the dry docks so we had to do something normally you just From what I was always told, you locate it, you don't do nothing, you locate the body, you call the authorities, they come do their thing. Well, you know, we was just following down the river and we couldn't, you know, do much. But then it was getting to a point where she was going to go underneath one of the dry docks. So, we, you know, we had to do something because that just makes a bad situation worse than you. You know, and then you never find her or you're ripping off dry, moving dry docks and all that. So we did, we had to. Uh, you know, we thought we were doing the right thing and just kind of got a rope on our arm and held it next to the boat till the authorities got there. And let me tell you something when they got there, they got there. Everybody was there news people, police, the coroner, harbor police. When we got to the dock, it was like, whoa. You know, who are all these damn people? And once the harbor boat, the harbor police boat got there, that turned into a you guys are a bunch of beep, beep, beeps, and you shouldn't have touched her. Well, you know, nobody can take five seconds to listen to us and say, well, if we wouldn't have, she'd have went under the dry dock and we'd be having a total different conversation right now. So, I mean, nothing came of it. We weren't fined or anything like that. It was just a bunch of yelling and screaming and arguing. And some people can't de-escalate an argument, some people can, and it was a pretty ugly scene for a few minutes, over and above the fact that we got a dead lady right here in the freaking water and all they want to talk about is some things you don't forget, you know, how it was handled, you know, there's a little more important things going on, let's do this, but it was just kind of weird. And it was sad really, cause she wasn't old, she was young, you know, she was a young lady in my eyes back then, she might've been 40. I mean, she had a son in high school, but yeah, that was some of, you know, one of them things that don't leave your memory for some reason, a bad memory, but a memory nonetheless. So that was another strange thing, but that's probably the two worst experiences I've had on the river. Knock on wood, I've never really got hurt on deck, you know, little things, but nothing major. After all them years of hearing what could happen, <laughs> so yeah, that was pretty uh, unforgettable. And then dispatching, you're kind of stuck in the office. You hear everything. You don't see. You're not really involved in all the bad things, you know. Because I've I've been through the crashes. Uh, one morning coming to work, I was dispatching. I was working days. Miss Sally, who is Lucy's grandmother, uh, she was working nights and i remember coming over to huey p long bridge and first thing you do when you get over the river is look at the fleet just natural because you could see everything and you know no cell phones at the time beepers and i'm looking at what i think is a ship in our fleet or right in our shipyard the no world so i get there drive over the levee and as i'm walking up to the office sure enough there's a ship Against our wash, just tied up to our wash dock, like it, it's supposed to be there, like it's a dirty barge waiting to get washed. So, back to no cell phones, you can't get information ahead of time. I might like, miss out. What are we doing with it? <laughs> it lost power, dropped anchor, turned around, bam, slammed against our dry dock. Pull everything up. But that was kind of wild watching that because I had a bird's view of that for days while Fixed everything and took everything out and got the ship out. The first thing that went was the ship, of course. They don't care about your stuff. So when they pulled the ship out, that's when our stuff started actually coming into view What how bad it was. Because, you know, I get the ship out the way, get the pilots off the ship and move on. And then before I actually started at, at Zito, uh, they got hit by a ship called the Hell's Point Faith. Because when I first started, I remember walking the fleet, and I'm like, well, what are all them barges doing up in the trees? And that was, you know, a story. And then I guess the craziest thing was the, what was it, the Brightfield, I think it was, that hit the uh, the Riverwalk? Is that what it was called? The Brightfield? Wasn't that the name of the ship?
0: I don't remember. That, yeah, that happened well before I was paying any attention to that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and it was, a, uh, I want to say it was a Saturday morning, high river. And I watched the ship, I'm pretty sure it was called the Brightfield, southbound passing in front of me. And I noticed it because what the hell is he doing? Why is he going so fast for one thing? And when he took nine mile, you know, because you, I got a bird's eye, I, I, this dispatch office has a great view of nine mile point. Could have just been me, but it sure looked like the ship bottomed out and leaned and he was just going too fast. I don't care what anybody says, you could read the story on it. He lost steering, he lost power, whatever in my opinion, watching him pass by us, which we're literally 10 miles above the GNO, 95 feet. So, I still think he was going too fast and when he stuck his nose through the GNO, he decided he wasn't going to make Algiers point because I was on 67 listening but nothing was said until he slowed down. In my opinion, he slowed down that Eddie called him and then he went back into gear and that's why, cause he didn't hit it, you know, the Eddie pushed him towards the bank. He didn't hit it head on. He did a great job of turning it away and it scraped the dock. I mean, it impacted the hell out of it. And, but anyway, go, listening on 67 and whatever other channel we might've been on, you know, cause of course, once it's happened, boats were coming from everywhere, you know, Boats were coming from low below Algiers Point. And everybody's talking on 67 and all these channels, and that was at the beginning of cell phones. Because <laughs> so, I'm listening to the radio, my first thing, I called Barry, my boss, just because. Just I mean, it wasn't no damage to us. We didn't own Algiers Fleet, which it didn't impact that fleet at that time. It was still Ingram, but I just thought to let him know. I call him. <clears throat> Well, he's somewhere across the lake playing uh, golf with some people. And we're talking on the phone. He's got me on speaker. And I'm telling him what I'm hearing on the radio. And people on the radio, deckhands, captains, they're saying there's bodies in the river. Because, you know, it's a mall, the Riverwalk Mall. And uh, if I remember, right, two of the guys that he was playing golf with owned a store in the Riverwalk Mall. And they hear. Bodies in the river. And Barry said, Noel, are you sh- sure I might like, back I'm just telling you what I'm hearing on these channels. I got two radios going on different channels. <laughs> and they take off running. They left their golf cart, golf clubs, take off running. Well, in the end, it turned out being mannequins. But you know, people are saying, I see a body over here, and you know, in all the chaos. Uh, and I don't remember who the guys were that Barry was with, but <laughs> he calls me back and says yeah man they took off they heard bodies and river." i'm like well i think that's changing and, and then that was it i was getting phone calls nothing to do with work all about that because you know friends know i work on the river and i'm like guys I, I can't i'm not wvue here i can't do this you know i gotta work i can't you quit calling me. you know i just i can't do this but that was another interesting thing because you know it got washed away All oh, the ship lost steering but Nope. In my opinion, he was going too fast when he passed me because he was overtaking a southbound tow between the bridge and nine mile point, you know, a 17 foot river, the water's moving five miles or whatever. And you know what happens when a ship takes the loser's headway? Control is gone. So I, in my opinion, when he stuck his nose through that bridge, he panicked, knocked it out again. It didn't take no time to turn him because he put it back because you could. You have to assume he put it back in gear. That's why he didn't hit it head-on. And I don't know if you remember, but it stopped about 50 feet above the ferry. It was pretty wild where it stopped, right above the ferry. Ferry full of the people. They didn't have time to do anything. Uh but I guess it could have been a lot worse. But that was another probably the weirdest thing that happened while I was dispatching you know, besides your normal crashes and ships hitting and barges sinking, but uh, yeah, that was probably one of the weirdest ones. Brightfield. Pretty sure that was the name. Right? Late 90s, early two thousand, something like that.
0: How about your experience with Katrina at work and at home?
1: Man, I mean, we went, we've been through a lot of storms. That was definitely the worst one. Uh, it didn't impact us as bad as it could have. I mean, you know, we blocked up the fleets like we normally do, which that was a major one. We only lost <clears throat> I want to say it was two Engelbards. That was it because uh, the David Sert showed up northbound from, you know, the hole <clears throat> with a couple open hopper bodies. I don't remember. It had to be cold coming from down there. But he didn't get that till after midnight, which I want to say was close to midnight Saturday night. We had already had the fleet blocked up, so his two barges we couldn't surround them. But he went to Algiers, and uh, our fleet guy Edgar at the time he stayed on. The, they will, they let him stay on the David Cert, you know, during the storm. We stayed in the office in what we call the ballroom abandoned dispatch upstairs the ballroom you know that old boat is the safest place you could be we're already on the river we're hooked to these shore wires that if they break it's over with anyway plus we're on spuds so we stayed you know me and a, a bunch of us sammy barry can't remember exactly who but we spent the night in there uh which was pretty wild it wasn't so bad until the power went out because back then we didn't have uh we had generators, but you had to manually turn them on. It was not automatic switch off for whatever reason. So for, I don't know, eight hours overnight, no power, and just sound. That that was the creepiest part. You couldn't go outside. The weather was too bad. Uh, not knowing what's going on. I mean, we had our boats tied up close to the shipyard, so we did have contact with them. But there's not a whole lot you could do while the storm's happening. Everybody's got to just tie it down wait for it to be over uh so by the time the sun came up it was kind of you know the storm was getting north of us so the wind that we were getting hammered with from the north changed let's see let me think about that because we was able to go on the north side of the office you know looking towards lake Pontchart. We was able to walk out that door and just look around because you know the door to the Ballrooms in set, so we had a little bit of protection. But you're not looking at the river; you're looking at the levee or the parking lot. And I guess you know we just go in and out every night and then out of border. Well, come sunrise, it was changing, and we couldn't open that door I mean, you could, have, but you wouldn't have got it closed because the wind was hitting us uh, from the north side. Uh, so we had to go out the south side. Well, we didn't even try it till the sun came up. There's no point. But so the storm was still hitting us when the sun came up, it was just, you know, a little further north, so I was able to walk out to the riverside, so at one point, I put on a slicker suit, and I went and just walked up to what we call our new construction area, because we had a couple crane barges tied up there, and one of our boats was there, just to check what I could check, you know, it's just, what I'm supposed to do is check things, but I couldn't go on the fleet, so I walked over there, took a look at everything, and everything looked good, I was standing in the corner out of it looking, and uh, we had a couple crane balls just there. Oh, Sammy stuff. And went back in the ballroom and it couldn't have been five, 10 minutes. Captain Johnny Bruce, he was on one of the boats. I don't remember. This. I don't know which boat, but he calls me on the handheld to tell me that Noel, the crane ball just gone. I'm like, Captain Johnny, I just, I just saw it. I just walked in here. He said, Noel, I just watched it leave because the wind changed. Currents change. So, I guess when that big wind changed, it just walked right through the lines or whatever we had to tie it tied off with. And he said, It's gone. And so I jumped back in my suit, and sure enough, I go out there, it's gone. I can't see nothing. All I can see is waves, rain, and wind. So, I'm like, Well, it couldn't have sank there. I mean, you would think it, it could sink there, but the boom would be out the water, you know, the boom straight up as low as we could put it. I'm like, well, it just took off. Who knows where it's at? We don't know. So as things started calming down, I'd walk out every few minutes and check, you know, watching look like in the ocean, the water's going uproar, really. four foot waves going uproar. Really. As the, as the uh, sun came up and the wind, I mean, the rains was in between blasting ass rain. You could see that. So we just trying to figure out how soon can we send the boat out to go find this damn crane and, basically look at the fleet which that took hours we were just sitting there not knowing where the crane went what the fleet looks like just like everybody you just can't go out you know as well as I do these boats ain't designed to be in four foot seas now we did end up going out a little sooner than we should have uh I jumped on a boat one boat went one way and we went this way whatever I think we even sent one that. No, we didn't send one to Algea. that something? Cause we had the David cert and another boat there. I just don't remember who it was and they were giving us good reports, except for the two barges that the miss, uh, David cert came in with Edgar called me in the middle of the night, you know, cause they were faced up to him looking at him and waves were just filling into the high plus the rain waves were just going in the hopper and, uh, Edgar called me a couple of times and I finally had to tell him, I said, Edgar, if you go out there on them barges and try to save them, I'm going to fire you. I mean, it's just not worth it. 150 mile an hour winds, whatever. I might be exaggerating, whatever. But he was that kind of, he was determined, just like the crew on the David Cert was. And I'm like, no, beat them barges. You know, y'all going to go out there and die and we're going to lose the barges anyway. What good is that? So they went down, both of them. And as, as I know they're still down there they, the water's so deep and it was right there by the dock they went down and they surveyed did whatever they do and I don't think they were ever picked up because of the water being that deep it's all about uh traffic as long as there's no threat to the traffic the the deep draft vessels and that's it we do because like I said it was either cold or scrap but more than like it was cold but that's all we lost We we lost some rigging And things like that. But our fleet at 105, we were stuck on ground because of the winds. But fortunately, us going out there a little sooner than we really should have, we were able to stop everything from being stuck on ground because there was another storm years later, Rita or one of them, where half of our upper fleet stayed on ground for eight months because we couldn't get out there soon enough to pull them. Because as fast as the river came up, because matter of fact, Back to Katrina, the last email we got from the Coast Guard before we lost power and everything was that because we was at Low River. Katrina was low river, that the river was gonna go up to 17 feet. And I'm like, man, we had three foot river. That can't happen. I watched it happen. I watched it walk well, because we got a gauge on one of our walkways going from the parking lot to the office. And we watched it had it definitely went to every bit of 17 feet, but it took longer for it to come up. And once the storm got north of the river, or northeast of us, you know, that line of Lake train, it turned around. And then the river water was going out. It went out way faster than it came in. And that's the reason we had all the stuff stuck to ground, but we was able to get it off because we went out too early. And the crane barge, we found it. Clean across the river, almost sunk. It was on the bank, it wasn't touching the levee, but it was on the bank, listing pretty bad, but it didn't, you know, it didn't the deck didn't go below water. It bottomed out on the bank. But we was able to get it off before the river got too low, also. Otherwise, it probably would have been on the levee. You know, 17 foot river puts you pretty damn close to the levee, especially on the west bank over there. There's not a lot of land like we got on the east bank. We got a pretty good bit of land between the, the water and the levee, but not as much over there. So it definitely would have been on the levy, but we got it off and then the aftermath of Katrina I think was more than the actual riding the storm out you know like I said earlier being stuck kind of basically living there for three months after the storm uh and then the things we saw after that you know running down to uh once it calmed down we went down to Algiers when I went and walked that fleet with Edgar and fixed what we had to fix And, you know, you're passing by Celeste Street, Wolf, it's on fire. You know, by the old grain, old public grain, it's getting out of service, but it's on fire. And then we go through the fleet, and then we go around Algiers Point just to do a tour. And then we start getting all these reports of what's going on in uh, St. Bernard, which was bad, you know. We, uh... Police are trying to get there by boat because they can't get there any other way. We actually, up at 105, ended up launching a bunch of New Orleans police, Harbor police, Coast Guard, whatever, a bunch of their boats using our crane to put them in the water so they could go down there to see what what was going on. And as the days went on, it just got worse, man. People shooting at the cops, no power. And at night, I'd go you know upstairs, but the not a fact, the dispatch trailer got destroyed, so that was the end of that trail. But I'd go up on the roof and look around and no lights anywhere except for us. It was just as far as you can see, normally there's a skyline you know, 360 at night, but nothing. just pitch dark for God, I don't know how long. Uh, and then and as the days went on, you know, all the stuff at the Superdome and people looting and people shooting. I mean, they had police getting shot on the dock at St. Bernard trying to help people. It, it, but, I mean, looking back, you can kind of understand because nobody knows who's who and so, as the days went on, we all armed ourselves. We didn't know it was coming over the levee at any point in time. We had quite a few uh wannabe wiz- visitors coming over the levee late at night because of the lights. Uh, it Got to the point where at night one of our captains, old Drew Decody, he's like, Noel, we should all get on these boats and just go tie up to the ship buoys and nobody can get to us. That's how it, I mean, it never got that bad for us, but just people hear it on the news and on the radios. What's going on? People are doing this, people are doing that. Uh, you know, most of our crews, like for instance, Drew, he couldn't go home, his house was a block from the 17th street canal, which broke. So his two-story home, we had to go get his parents. They were stuck in the attic of a two-story home. Uh, Jack's son, Jack, Jack Worshbaugh, old bucket. He had a Toyota truck, sat up real high, four-wheel drive. So they was able to drive, I don't remember how many days later, couldn't have been many days later, down uh, Veterans. And Drew was able to swim to his house and get his parents out and bring, I don't remember where they went. But they were in, I don't remember right, they were in a nursing home prior to Katrina and they refused to get on the bus and leave wherever they was going. So Drew had to go get them and bring them to the house because they refused to leave. And that happened. They survived. The mother, I don't remember right, his mom fell out the, the ladder, fell down the ladder on the damn attic stairs and broke her arm. So that went on for a couple of days Damn it. Is that my wife calling me again all right tim sorry about that no problem where were we uh katrina yeah so a lot of the crews like i'm saying drew they were it was there was so much crazy information going around about what was going on looting people shooting everybody's on uh shootouts on bridges uh, and we were literally considering getting on the boat and going tying up to the ship buoys where nobody can get to us because of the few things we had at the uh, levee. We basically had to monitor the parking lot 24, especially at night because people was just, you know, people looking for help or whatnot. But I was kind of surprised once it was all over with looking back that it didn't happen as much as it, you know, more than it did. Because after a couple of days, one of our captains, he went to his house and wag him in a because the West Bank did good the West Bank. And I really felt guilty after I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh He went and got a bunch of guns, brought him back to the yard because we had a bunch of people staying there and like, well, we may as well. It was like the wild west walking around with rifles. And once he did that, I went to my house, which I lived on the West Bank also, just to go check, even though I knew the West Bank was from what I heard was Fared pretty well. I'm like, I still want to go check my house first chance I can. So I finally did. And uh, going over that levee and seeing what I saw was, because you don't even think about it till you, you know, with everything going on the yard and on the riverside, you're not even thinking about what's going on on the other side till you, till you do it. And uh, it was crazy. That sight coming over the levee and stopping at the top of the levee and just looking at the neighborhood by the yard. Unreal. Couldn't drive on the road because of uh, poles and wires. So I took the levee all the way up to as close as I could to the bridge and was able to get across the bridge. But even that was a uh, pretty wild thing because the bridge was still just two lanes on each side. Nothing like it is now. And it was people crossing, walking to the uh, West Bank hundreds of them so all i could do was lock my door and i put the rifle i had on my dashboard and laid on my horn and got in the left lane and i wasn't stopping i mean it it was kind of weird because you want to stop and help but how, how can you help i don't know 400 people there's nothing you could do uh and it was nobody coming to the east bank it was people from the east bank going to the west bank so needless to say, I didn't do that again for a couple of days. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to that could have been, I was by myself. That could have been oh Man, all these notices. That could have been bad. Uh, but I was lucky. Nothing happened in my house. Everything was good. We were very fortunate on that outcome. Except for the wife being out of town for all the time. I see I didn't have to leave. Well, how the hell I'm supposed to know that? <laughs> you know? Look at the East Bank. What's going on? And what I was saying earlier, I felt guilty because the whole time working at Zito, ninety. Five percent of the people working there are from the East Bank. So you always get into that, oh, he's just a West Banker. You know, you hear that. Everybody gets ribbed for locations and whatnot. And <laughs> I said it a lot. That yeah, yeah, that's all right. Damn Storm's gonna come and the East Bank's gonna go on the water like it did for Betsy, which I don't remember Betsy and Camille. I was I think I was in my mother's stomach for Betsy and Camille was before that. But you grow up hearing the stories and seeing the pictures and basically using my memory and looking at what was actually going on. It was the same damn thing. The whole East Bank, underwater. I don't remember why it happened for Betsy. Uh, but I just remember the stories and the West Bank fared pretty well. So that uh, using that as a retort when people dog me for living on the West Bank, that was never happened again. Like I never used that. And say, yeah, that's all right. You know, I never did that again. Weird story about Betsy. The one I remember the most is my dad saying to people when they talked about it. You know, you know we had an old rickety garage in the back, wooden garage, two car garage in our backyard, which I barely. The only thing I remember about it is when they tore it down. Uh, but when we loaded up in the car in his Mustang, an old '65 Mustang, because it was in '65, and we went to. Probably Brother Martin High School during Betsy, you know, too. It was either Brother Martin or Gentilly Terrace. Uh, But I remember my dad talking stories about when he got home. The garage was still there. But everything in the garage, you know, whatever he had on the walls, tools, chairs, was everywhere. But one little lawn chair was right in front of his car, he says, when he left. And when he came back, it was still in the same spot. So like the wind just went around, you know, who knows if it's true, but that's what I remember about Betsy. And the comparisons of the aftermath pictures, it's pretty wild. And then I went to Galveston for a couple of days. I'm like, Sammy, Barry, y'all mind if I leave for a couple of days? They gave me a little bit of money and my wife and them stayed out of town. They that was an everyday argument. I'm coming home. No, you ain't. The West Bank's fine. There's no power and chaos in the city. So it's, no matter which way you come from, you got to go through it. You know, I mean, it's happening. People are on the interstates, baby. She couldn't she couldn't comprehend it. I mean, you know, they was in a place called Uncertain Texas. That's where they stayed for three and a half weeks or a month. But it was a campground. So, you know, they enjoyed themselves, but I just remember her guilt tripping me about me telling her not to come home. What you gonna come home to? You gonna be living in a hot house. Nobody's worried about the West Bank, you know, because obviously the main focus was the East Bank because it's under flipping water. So, I mean, we was driving to, uh, I think I drove as far as uh, Sorrento, Gonzalez, just to go get, you know, water, food. But then, then the... Uh, MREs started happening. They was out there. The military was out there passing out. So we was we was well taken care of as far as that. MREs, water. We ended up having a few... Uh, I think it was Jefferson Parish police stayed with us for, shit, two weeks, something like that, because they had them living in hotels by the airport with no power. Well, one of them, you know, because every, every day a different... or state trooper or somebody would come over just to see you know what was going on so apparently a couple of them got the idea and sammy said hey we got room right here in the bottom ac bring a cot bring a sleeping bag and so we had that with us after i think it was probably 10 to 14 days before that happened but so we were a little more calm at night you know we had some law enforcement living with us they armed just like we are so yeah katrina was uh Pretty wild. We went through a few more, but none of them were ever like that. Damage wise maybe, but not you know, not the chaos, the no power for a month and people looting and shooting and the superdome thing and crazy. And I mean Ida, that was what, two years ago? Work it really didn't I don't remember if we had any issues at work. I don't think so. Oh yeah, yeah, we did. We did, we lost a bunch of stuff. Uh, mainly uh, not barges, one barge and a bunch of equipment that was on the barge. The good old Bella, big old giant barge and it just something happened in the middle of the night. I think Barry was out there at 3.30 and it was there and he went back out at 4 and it was gone so it was that quick. It never completely disappeared. We could see it but so that was the big thing for Ida. We lost a lot as far as the company goes. I mean I lost the roof but no big deal. That's why we have that thing called insurance. So I wasn't as bad at work and everywhere, I, I guess you could say. So hopefully we don't have no more of that in the near future. I've seen enough of them because, I mean, was it like Katrina, Rita? And there was another one that was like three of them back to back to back hit us like that. And then in, in a two year span, something crazy <laughs> like that. So I've had my fill of hurricanes no fun.
0: Indeed. No, I was watching Katrina happen from about six hours north. um, Still in college at the time. But anyway, uh, see, we are past our intended time window this morning. Do you have time for a few more questions?
1: Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, switching gears entirely, do you recall the concert the night before you got in that car accident? Who'd you go to see?
1: Yes, I do. Daryl Hall and John Oates. At the... uh, Lakefront Arena, that's who it was. I don't remember who opened for them. It was Daryl Hall and Jonathans And I wasn't really that excited about going. I liked their music, but they weren't a, like a show band, like a Metallica or a Kiss or, you know, it was just, but it, but it ended up being a lot better than I expected because they got a lot of good music. And yeah, that's who it was. Daryl I just don't remember who opened up for them. It was, you know, hell, 1990, 91. <laughs> I don't remember that far back, but that's who it was.
0: Well, sticking with music, I see a piano and a few guitars on the wall behind you. Tell me about your experience oh, in music.
1: Yeah. yeah, I uh I got really interested in guitar. My dad played, you know, he always played a little bit. He never he wasn't in bands or anything, but he got me interested in the clarinet when I was in elementary school. And then uh I discovered, you know, radio music. I was I did the clarinet for health second through sixth grade and then when i you know 11 12 years old you started hearing all the other music and my interest changed to guitar when i was like 15 so my dad you know he, he learned me a little bit the basic stuff what he knew i don't think he was ever ever formally trained on guitar he was on clarinet and uh something else not the clown, piccolo, I think he played piccolo, but anyway, he picked up guitar, and so I picked up what I could from him, and got really interested, and I got pretty good at it, you know, once I quit school, I had a lot of free time on my hands, (laughs) so uh, I'm more or less, I was self-taught, and I never really did anything with it, besides, you know, entertainment, at the house with a couple friends, and then, uh, hell, I decided to try and get a band which with a lot of encouragement from people when i was i don't know 38 39 something like that way too late to be starting it but we did it and uh end up getting a little lucky far as finding other musicians that i didn't even know just like uh the other guitar player and the drummer was a through a mutual friend and we ended up putting a little band together we called it hard drive cover band. I mean, we had a couple of our own songs, but uh, so hell we, we did pretty good. We uh, I want to say we started, we actually really got started as a full time band in 2001 or 2002, something like that. And we were doing pretty good. Then uh, Katrina hit. And for, I don't know, two weeks, we had a practice room in Mid-City right off of Lafayette Street and over by the uh, Parkway uh, Bakery, Bayou St. John, that area, Mid-City, Orleans Avenue. We had a practice room up on the second floor of this old building owned by Jimmy Robinson. I don't know if you ever heard that name, but he's a guitar virtuoso still. I'm pretty sure he still owns the building. I see him on social media all the time. He goes to Germany and plays with He's like classical guitar. He does some amazing stuff on guitars. But Jimmy Robinson, and uh, he, he's had a band for years, but that's kind of off and on now. I don't remember the name of him, but we rented the room from him. We were on the second floor. But Jimmy Robinson, virtuoso. Anyway, so after about two weeks, I was the only one in the band still in town. Everybody else was scattered. I finally got enough nerve to go down there and see. You know, see if I can get to the jam room, see if I can get in there, what's going on with it, because of where it was, you know, it's mid-city, a little sketchy neighborhood, and, you know, what was going on made it worse. So one day I finally went, power was still out, so I couldn't get my vehicle in the building, but I was able to get the sliding door open, enough to walk up, walk up the ramp and go to uh, our, our door. And once I got around the corner, the whole roof over the parking area, because you actually drove in the building and parked on the second floor. And it's pretty wild. Once I came around the corner, the whole roof over the parking area is gone. I'm like, oh, man. Because everything we had for the band was in this room. That's where we practiced everything. Uh, everything was in that room. So I finally managed to beat the door open because the wooden floors, everything wood. The actual wood floor as you drive on is wood. It's big, giant beams. Well, everything's swollen up from getting wet and couldn't get the door open. Finally, I got it to knock open. Boom. But it's pitch black. No power. Can't see anything. It's a big, giant room. So pitch black, which was a good thing. It means freaking roof's still there. Hey, we got that going for us. But is the floor still there? Is that, you can't see anything. So I managed to crawl through the room to the back wall and open up. We had a big giant window, but we had it was always covered with plywood, you know, on hinges. But and so I opened and let some room light in the room, and lo and behold, there wasn't a drop of water in the room. Nothing. Everything just like we left it a month before, whatever it was. So that was a wonderful thing. I got I managed to get a hold of a couple of other guys and let them know, man. Hey, look, dude, everything's here. We're good. The building's a mess. We do have a little bit of a leak coming down the wall on the outside. <clears throat> so once they got back in town, we was able to get up on the roof and fix that. And it probably took another two weeks before we can get our stuff out because of the roof falling in. And You know, they trying to clean it up. We actually spent as much time as we could there helping. But we had to manhandle everything out the room, down the ramp and all that. But we did that and it went to my house and we went back to work as a bank. We were one of the first bands back in action. And a good friend of mine, his sister-in-law owned a place called The Doghouse in Chalmette, right on the corner of, uh, I don't know the name of the streets, but right by the big stack right there, by the ferry landing and all that, right? You know, downtown Chalmette, whatever you want to call it, a place called The Doghouse, a little bar. But So we started playing that. Man, we played every Friday and Saturday night. For six months. We made a killing. Cause like I said, everybody else lost equipment, lost homes or whatnot, and weren't able to get back on the circuit, so to speak. We were just local. We didn't go anywhere. But for them, them couple of four, five, six months, being the only thing in town was pretty exciting. And another part of it was every week it was a different different group of people. Cause most of the people that was showing up to see us was people coming from out of town to help, you know, recovery and stuff like that. So it was always like a new crowd. So, yeah, we were playing the same music, but it was always mostly 80% of new crowd. So it was like a new thing every week. And that was probably the best part of Katrina. We met so many people from out of town playing them shows on Friday and Saturday night. I mean, it got to the point, we just left our stuff there. We never did that. Even if we were playing two nights in a row, We tore it down and put it back up because you never know what's going to happen between them and that, that now and then, and who's got the money to replace all this mess. But it got to the point where we just left it. It was, it was that. Six months, I want to say about six months till everything started getting back to normal. And okay, we got to let, start letting other bands come in. But that was pretty exciting. That got us going that far as, uh, other people knowing about us, you know the few bars we played prior to that was pretty much the same three, four bars, but that kind of blew us up, so to speak, and we got to play everywhere. We went as far as uh Jackson, Mississippi, three or four times, and that was all because of MySpace, not Facebook, MySpace. <laughs> everybody was communicating on MySpace, and we ended up getting a couple shows in Jackson, Mississippi. And the furthest west we went was somewhere in Lake Charles. I don't remember the name of the places, but uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, we was playing at a place that was – I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, if they opened up these big doors on one side, you're looking at a minor league baseball stadium. So that was pretty well. Left field or something they called it. We ended up playing there three or four different weekends, and they went pretty good. And then, you know, got back to normal and – We got older, plans started changing. You know, I wasn't—I wasn't in the band to to make money. You know, I had a decent job, and it wasn't the same for everybody in the band. So ideas started changing, and they wanted to start charging too much and charging this and charging things. Just went south, and it kind of just went away. You know, and uh, that's the only band I've ever been. And I tried—we tried replacing. Like a drummer, and then tried the bass player and the singer, and and I'm too old for this mess, guys. Y'all go ahead and do y'all thing, and I'm gonna go on. But you know, when it turned into money, you know, it's all about money. I need money. I don't have a job. I need to make money off the band. It's like that's not reality, guys. You go talk to any of these other cover bands. I promise you, they all have jobs. We're not gonna be the Jackson Five. You know, it's just not the reality of it. But some people can't see past that. that kind of made it go away, and I kept interest in playing, you know, a friend across the street, whatnot, a little bit, but it kind of goes away once you do that. For me, anyway, once you you had a reason to practice at night, you got a show, you got a bunch of people you're going to be playing in front of. You can't just not practice, and that kept my interest or piqued my interest, and I guess my interest kind of went away with that, you know, which is a shame, but I still pull one down and play, but it's gone. You know, Uh, I'm not living the fantasy thinking something's going to happen, but uh, it's fun to play, especially in front of the grandkids, you know, because they like it. I just play the acoustic and whatnot. So it was fun. I I never thought it would get that good. I mean, it wasn't great. We didn't turn into anything, but it was definitely it turned into more than I could have imagined it would. So it was definitely worth all the sacrifices and working late and, you know. You finish your show, everybody goes home. Not you. You're there till five in the morning, moving equipment and blah, 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 blah. And once again, hats off to my company for putting up with that while I was doing it. It didn't affect it too bad, but there was sometimes it was an issue, you know, but they were, they understood and they were real flexible for me. So it was worth it. Almost got divorced, but that's what happens when you think you're a rock star for a little while, you know? (laughs) It kind of happens.
0: Well, Noel, I think that's as good a place to stop as any, man. I appreciate your time this morning.
1: Yeah, anytime, man. Can't wait.
0: Yeah, have a good afternoon with your grandkids too, my friend.
1: Okay. yep you got it, buddy. Thank you, Tim.
0: Thank you. This has been a production of Where At Studios LLC.